Will you take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John 1? Now, I, I know if you've been here more than a few weeks, you know I'm really predictable when it comes to the start of the sermon. Every time I say, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word, and you are welcome to make fun of me for being predictable week after week, but I hope it's also an encouragement to you because it reminds us that every time we gather and we open the Word together, that God is speaking to us. And that in this book, in the Bible, we have everything we need for life and godliness. And so I hope it's a great encouragement, even if I'm not very original week after week. Before I read John 1, the passage we're going to read today, let me remind you of the context. Last week, we met and looked at the ministry of this very peculiar man, John the Baptist. And you need to remember, John was a common name in the first century, just like it is today. So don't confuse John the Apostle, who wrote this gospel, with John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the son of Mary's older cousin, Elizabeth. He was a miracle baby. She had been barren for many, many years. She was older, and he was born to her uh, after the promise of God through the angel. He had lived many years in obscurity in the wilderness. He ate locusts and wild honey, and he entered his public ministry probably sometime around 26 AD. His ministry produced a huge stir in Israel, and many people were going out in the wilderness to hear Zechariah and Elizabeth's son John preach. Now, as people did that and the gathering grew, the Jewish religious establishment grew concerned, and so they sent sort of an envoy of spies to ask questions, to do some detective work about what John uh, was teaching and who he was. And so we saw last week, they asked him, are you the Messiah? And he says, I'm not the Messiah. Are you Elijah? And he says, I'm not Elijah. They they say, are you the prophet? And he says, I'm not the prophet. And, and there's really, there's repeated questions by the religious leaders, and John really never answers them. And it's not that he's being evasive, it's that he really didn't care that anybody knew who he was. He didn't care that he'd be remembered. What he cared about was that the people thought, what the people thought of Jesus. Now, wouldn't that be wonderful to care more about what people think of Jesus than what they think of us? Most of us struggle, probably all of us struggle with caring what others think of us, and so we we talk more perhaps about ourselves, or we don't talk enough about Christ because we're worried what people will think of us. But John had no such worry. He only cared what the people thought of Christ. Well, once again in the passage today, John is going to shift the attention from himself to Jesus. And he's going to make two statements about Jesus, one in verse uh, 29, one in verse 33, both of which are theologically loaded statements. But I want you to know that what we're going to see today is not about getting all of your theological ducks in a row. It's about beholding the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so let's turn the eyes of our hearts to him now. John chapter 1, starting at verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw my spirit descend from heaven like a dove, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. 
I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. When I was a child, my favorite athlete was a professional baseball player named Cal Ripken Jr. He played shortstop for the Baltimore Orioles, and in my childhood, and probably still today, I could tell you almost anything about Cal. I knew everything about him. I knew his height, his age, his weight, where he was from, his statistics. And yet, I've never met Cal Ripken. I'd love to, if any of you have connections, I'd love to show up at his house one day and meet with him. But if I show up at his house right now, he's probably going to call the police on me. And rightly so. See, there's a big difference between knowing a person and knowing about a person. I know lots of things about Cal Ripken, but I've never met the man in my life. I'd guess that most of us in this room, if we were to take a test on the basics of what we know about Jesus Christ, we could all do pretty well. We know he was born at Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. He was a great teacher, and he did miracles. We know he was crucified, dead, and buried. We know he was resurrected and ascended into heaven, and one day he'll return again to judge the living and the dead. I'm going to assume that almost everybody in this room knows most of that, and if it were a test, you'd probably do enough, do well enough to get a passing grade. So let's all go home, right? That's not the test. The test is not how much do you know about Jesus Christ. The test is, do you know Jesus Christ? Friends, do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know him intimately and personally to the point in which you can say, yes, I know him. I know this Jesus. I love him. I love to spend time with him, and I long to live every moment of my life for him. That's what it means to really know him, and not everyone who knows about Jesus truly knows Jesus Christ. This even seems to have been the case with John the Baptist at some point in the past. Look at verse 31. I myself didn't know him, and John says. Now, some commentators say that means that, there were, that, that John and Jesus had not met in the flesh before, that they had never met face to face, and that it wasn't until Jesus' baptism that John actually met Jesus. Now, I think that's possible, but I think it's unlikely. Remember, John the Baptist's mother and Jesus' mother were cousins They met even when John and Jesus were in the womb. It was John that leaped in the womb to be in the presence of Christ. So I think it's less likely that they had never met before. I think it's more likely that John was saying, you know, though I knew a lot about him, I didn't really know him. I didn't really know who he was or what he came to do for our salvation. The Greek word here for to know that John uses, it's more than about mere knowledge. It has to do with understanding, and so I think John is saying, I've always known about him. We had met. We may have played together as children, whatever it was, but I didn't really get it. You know, we have folks in this room who have had that exact experience in life. You grew up in the church. You knew lots of things about Jesus, but perhaps it was later in age. Some of you, much later in age, where you're able to say, you know, now I really know him. That's the purpose for which John wrote this gospel. It's not a biography where he's trying to tell us everything about Jesus. 
He's trying to tell us everything we need to know that we may believe in him. That's, that's what John says in John chapter 20, that the, the whole reason he wrote this book is that you may believe. And there's two things that are essential to our belief here in this text, two things that John's going to say about Jesus that we must believe. The first is that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The second is Jesus is the Son of God who came to bring us new life. So Lamb of God, Son of God, and and you'll find both of those printed in your bulletin for today's outline. We're going to camp out in these two great truths today. First, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and that's just what John says as he's there in the wilderness, and people are looking to John, and they're following John, and John points away from himself and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, there's a lot of things he could have said about Jesus. Behold, the King who has come to reign, the teacher who has come to be heard, the example who has come to be followed. But John says the most important thing for you to know about Jesus is that he is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. I think most of us today, if we've spent any time in in church, we know that lambs were extremely important in the Old Testament sacrificial system. There were a lot of sacrificial lambs. You open the Old Testament and you start to see them almost immediately. Genesis 22, you see Abraham and Isaac traveling up Mount Moriah for a sacrifice, but there is no lamb. And Isaac looks at Abraham, Father, where is, where, where is the lamb? And Abraham says, the Lord will provide a lamb. You get to the Passover lamb, Exodus 12, the lamb that was, was slain and the blood was painted across the doorposts of the house and that the angel of death might pass over. And that created a, a festival, a celebration that was to be observed year after year after year in Jewish life. There were the two, two lambs slaughtered every day, morning and evening, as part of the, the morning and evening sacrifices in Jewish worship. There was the suffering servant lamb of Isaiah chapter 53 that would be led like a, like a sheep to the slaughter. And the Lord would lay on him the iniquity of us all. And so thinking about the, the vast magnitude of roles that the lamb played in the Old Testament, we have to say, well, which lamb did John have in mind? Was it the sacrifice? Was it... Uh, the lamb that took the place of Isaac on Moriah? Was it the Passover lamb? Was it the sacrificial uh, daily sacrifices? What lamb was it? And I think John's going to say it's all of them and more. Jesus Christ is the complete lamb. He is the lamb of God that all those lambs of the Old Testament pointed to. He's the ram in the thicket given for us. He's the final Passover lamb. He's the unblemished sacrifice. He's the suffering lamb. He's all of them, and he's infinitely greater than any of them. How? Because those millions, and it's no exaggeration to say millions of lambs were sacrificed over 1,400 years of the Jewish sacrificial system. Those millions of lambs reminded people of the guilt of their sin, but they could never take it away. But one drop of Christ's dying blood upon Calvary accomplished what the blood of millions of lambs throughout the years could not do. It takes away sin. What is sin? Uh, There are children in here. I saw some of their heads poke up. There are children that could tell us sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Uh, That's from the Shorter Catechism. But in in, in normal language, sin is a violation of God's law. Sin's a violation of God's law. In the original Greek, sin meant to miss the mark. It was a language used of an archer shooting at a target, and when he missed, the word for it is the root of our word for sin. 
there is a standard set by God, a standard of perfection for which we must all aim, and when we miss the standard, that is sin. Now, to some degree, our sin is due to human weakness, but it's more than that. It's due to human rebellion. See, with every sin, what we are really saying to God, not not necessarily out loud, not even maybe in our minds, but subconsciously we're saying, God, you will not be God over me. I want to be God over my life, and so I'm going to live the way I want to live. I know how you have told me to live, but I'm going to live my own way. So sin is more than just a mistake or a disease. Sin is rebellion against a holy God. And not only is it an act of rebellion, but it's the root of all human pain and sorrow in our world. See, God's law, C.S. Lewis said it this way, God's law is a good law. It leads to human flourishing. It's in God's law that we know how to treat God and neighbor rightly. So how much better would the world be if everyone set aside the Sabbath day for worship? How much better would it be if everyone held marriage in high esteem as God's word instructs? How much better would our world be if everyone kept the truth as the ninth commandment requires? Uh, what if we all acknowledge the sanctity of human life from womb to tomb? It would be a far better world, wouldn't it, if everyone obeyed the law? And what happens when we break God's law is that sorrow and pain follow. Sin is always destructive. It never advertises that. It never announces to us its full instructions. It never says to us, I'm your deadly enemy. I've come to to make your life miserable. But isn't that exactly what sin does? It downplays its magnitude, but it produces inestimable damage in our lives. It shows us pleasure, and it hides the pain. It shows us the flower, but hides the thorns. And yet we go back to it again and again, don't we? We return to our sin. We're all guilty. And there aren't big sinners and small sinners. We like to think in those categories. The, the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we like to compare grades, don't we? We might all fail, but at least we get a better failing grade than somebody else, right? To go back to the test metaphor, God doesn't grade us on a curve. He, he's not saying, well, you did a little better than the rest of the class, so I'll bump you up. The Bible is unequivocally clear that all sin deserves what? The wages of sin is death. And even if you went through the whole of your life, if you went through all of life and only sin one time, think about that for a second. If you went through all of life and only sin one time, James 2.10 says you are still guilty of breaking the whole law. We have to know the bad news before we appreciate the good news. And so when we understand what it means that we are sinners, John's statement, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it takes on whole new meaning for us, doesn't it? Because I am the sinner for whom Jesus came. John understood the main reason Jesus came is to take away sin. You know, I taught, a, I taught high school for, I don't know, four or five years. And if you've ever taught high school, you always have in every class a smart aleck student that while you're teaching raises his hand and says, am I going to need to know this for the test or not? Friends, you need to know this for the test. If there is one thing that you take away from today, it's that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, what does that mean? What do we need to know about that? 
Well, for one thing, it means he takes away all kinds of sin. He takes away all kinds of sin. When this lamb suffered for us the guilt of all kinds of sin, you name it, those sins were laid upon him. Look at 2 Corinthians 5 for a moment. Second Corinthians 5. Paul's been talking about the ministry of the gospel, and he wants to proclaim it one more time. Verse 21, for our sake, he, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, uh, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. So this perfect Jesus, who never looked with lust upon a woman, had all the guilt of the sin of adultery cast upon him, who never lied, had all the weight of the guilt of a liar cast upon him. Upon the cross, this unblemished lamb of God had every kind of sin, the guilt of it all laid upon him. He was covered in it to such a degree that when his father looked upon him, he saw the filth of all these things, all kinds of sin. He poured his wrath out upon his own son as if Christ had done it himself. Do you understand this? There is no sin that you have committed so awful that Christ could not take it away. Some of you really struggle with that. You know Jesus took away a lot of your sins, but you also feel you've committed certain sins that were just a little too much, and so you're carrying with you your abortion. You're carrying with you years of hypocrisy, being in the church and pretending you knew but you didn't know. You're carrying with you adultery. You're carrying with you your parenting mistakes. And you think, maybe I need to suffer a little more for what I've done. Or you think, you know, maybe, maybe I'm really a Christian. Maybe I'm really forgiven. But God would never use somebody like me. I've got too messed up of a past. I'm kind of a B-team Christian. And then when God looks upon you, he sees the adulterer, the liar, the hypocrite that you were. Dear ones, every sin of every believer is forgiven fully, finally, and forever. If you are trusting in Christ, every sin you have ever committed is fully, finally, forever forgiven. Well, God knows the awful things you've done more than you do. He knows the awful things you may still do. And yet he says, I am satisfied with you because I am satisfied with my son who came to take away your sin. When I look at you, I see him, and I am well pleased, because when I looked at him upon the cross, I saw you. I saw your sin. There is no sin so great Jesus could not, would not, and did not take it away for his people. And then it says, for the sin of the world. Now, positively, this means that Jesus takes away all kinds of sin from all kinds of people without distinction with regard to ethnic or social status. It's hard for us to realize the impact of this, but if you're to read the scriptures, the emphasis is on one very small people group in the Old Testament, the Jewish people who made up just a small percentage of people on the face of the earth. That was the emphasis of God's redeeming work. And on occasion, you would see God graft in a Gentile like Rahab or Ruth, but for the most part, the emphasis was on the Jews. But with the gospel, God's saving work is going global. 
And the church within just a few years would be a melting pot of Jew and Gentile alike. By the end of the first century, we talked about this in Sunday school, the apostle uh, Thomas had carried the gospel to India, Matthew to Ethiopia, James to Rome, and so on. Christ died to bear all kinds of sin for all kinds of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's not just the Jews. That's a bigger deal than we realize. It's easy to take that for granted. But the gospel going global was huge news. And so John, pointing at Jesus, says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now we need to ask a question here. And it's not a particularly easy question for some of us because we all bring our different theological paradigms to the table. But the question is, when it says world, does it mean the whole world without distinction, as I've just said? Or does it also mean all without exception? Did Jesus, in his dying work upon the cross, take away all sin from every person in the whole world? Let's go back to what we said a moment ago. This lamb took away all kinds of sin. When God looked, when the Father looked at the Son upon the cross, he saw my sin, your sin. All kinds of sin from all kinds of people upon him. He bore it all. I was converted to follow Christ January 14th, 2000. But Christ paid the penalty for my sins almost 2,000 years before that. It wasn't as if he died 2,000 years ago to potentially take away my sins, but then he'd have to wait and see if I would one day believe in him, and then he'd retroactively take the penalty. Christ paid it fully upon the cross. That's why Jesus said those amazing words, it is finished. It's the Greek word tetelestai. It literally, more literally, could be translated paid in full. And so whose sins did Christ's death take away? It could have been sufficient for the whole world, for every single person on the face of the earth, without exception, if that had been his intent. But it was only efficient for the elect. Upon the cross, listen to this, upon the cross, all kinds of sin, Christ took all kinds of sin from all kinds of people who would one day make up his elect. I know that some dear brothers and sisters don't really love the word elect, and and you might be thinking right now, you Presbyterians, you're always quoting that heretical John Calvin and his doctrine of election. If you feel that way, I want you to understand, John Calvin didn't come up with all this. St. Augustine didn't come up with all this. Even the Apostle Paul didn't come up with this idea of sovereign election. Nobody taught God's sovereign election more than Jesus Christ. And nowhere did he teach it more plainly than in John's gospel. I want you, going from John 1, we're just going to start turning right. I want you to see how often and unashamedly the Lord Jesus talks about his sovereign grace in our election. Let me just give you a a sample. And, And please let me be clear on this. I don't bring this all up as a matter of debate. I bring it up as a matter of rejoicing that our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has done everything necessary for our salvation. John, look over at John 6. This is the bread of life discourse. Jesus has fed the 5,000. He has a huge following now, and he begins to teach. And what does he begin to teach them? He begins to teach them about sovereign election. 
his sovereign grace. Look at verse 37. He says, all the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never cast out. Jesus is saying here the same thing that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, that there were some who were predestined before the foundation of the world by God's sovereign mercy. Look two verses later, verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So we see in verse 37, the Father has elected some. We see in verse 39, the Son has accomplished their redemption. And then look down at verse 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The only way we will come to God in saving faith is if the Holy Spirit first draws us. Do you see here what I mean? This is the triune work of God. The Father has chosen, the Son has accomplished, and the Spirit draws us. Let's keep going. Look over at John 10. You know, if you're tempted, by the way, to say, can you believe that preacher was talking about predestination? Don't worry about what I'm talking about. Let me ask you, is this what the scriptures teach or not? That's really the question. It doesn't matter what I believe. It matters what the scriptures teach. Look at John 10, 27 to 29. You know this passage well. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they'll never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So Jesus says, I have these sheep out there. I have these sheep and no one can take them away from me. Well, how did Jesus' sheep become Jesus' sheep? Was it because of some decision they would make one day? Look at verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Doesn't that make your heart rejoice? If you are a Christian, it's not because of some decision you made. It's because of a decision the Father made before the foundation of the world. The Son bore your sins upon the cross, not so that hypothetically you could be saved if you do your part, but He bore your sins, and then your saving faith was the result of the Spirit drawing you to Himself. Your salvation is not your doing. It's the work of the triune God. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all eternally invested in your salvation. This is wonderfully encouraging news for the Christian. And it doesn't stop there. Look at John 15. It's almost like Jesus anticipated that we might resist this a little bit and say, well, you know, it's really hard to hear that God is sovereign and I'm not, isn't it? And so our our flesh always wants to fight back. Look at verse 16 of John 15. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit fruit and that your fruit should abide. In other words, I chose you to be the church. I chose you to be my holy people whom I'm going to renew from the inside out so that you would go to the ends of the earth and do what Adam and Eve were supposed to do and all their uh, descendants were supposed to do, which is display my glory. They failed to do it, but in the church I've made a new people and you're going to go to the ends of the earth to proclaim my glory. Two more chapters. John 17, verse 6. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, what does he have to talk to his father about just before the crucifixion? He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. He's talking about sovereign election. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. 
Look at verse 9. Jesus says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. If you're a Christian, you are one of the ones Jesus was praying for that night in John 17. See, the doctrine of election may be a stumbling block for man, and at times, even we who preach it do so with fear and trembling. But Christ taught it unashamedly and with great joy because he knows that human salvation must rest solely on God's sovereign election. We shouldn't be ashamed that Jesus saved some and not others. We should be utterly amazed that he saved any of us. And so in saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John is saying, lift the eyes of your heart upwards to Jesus Christ. Trust in him. He alone can save you. He alone can take away the guilt of your sin. Friends, hear me one more time on this. There is no sin so great that Christ cannot deal with it. There is nothing you've done in the past that you who come to him cannot be forgiven. There is no person who's too much of an outsider for Jesus to bring you into the kingdom. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the first thing we see. The second thing I want you to see is Jesus is the Son of God who came to bring us new life. Now, this one's not as obvious in the text, but it's here, I promise. Look with me at 33 and 34. John says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me with water, to baptize with water, said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. What's John saying? He's saying, you know, I go around and I pour waters of baptism upon you, but it's just a sign. It's a sign of something greater. What is it? It's a sign of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. That's what John's saying. I can pour water on you, but Jesus, he alone can baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He alone can pour the Holy Spirit upon you. You know, that's what you see when you see baptism. Water baptism is a picture of what happens when Christ, by the Holy Spirit, comes to a person with power and brings them from spiritual death to new life. That's what baptism is. Water baptism doesn't accomplish that, but it's a picture of it. It's a dramatic reenactment of it. Now, John's baptism wasn't something new and novel. Look with me back at Isaiah 44 for a moment. Uh, this is 700 years before John's time. Isaiah 44, verse 3. God says through the prophet of Isaiah, For I'll pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And then Joel talked about this. And then Peter quotes Joel in Acts 2. Look there with me at Acts chapter 2. And this is Peter's Pentecost sermon. And in Acts 2, verse 17, he says, he quotes Joel and he says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. This is what it means to become a Christian, is that God pours his spirit out upon you. And and if you keep looking down in Acts 2, look at verse 37. The people hear 
Peter preach and they're cut to the heart and they say to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus himself, uh, throughout the scriptures, we see this connection between baptism and the pouring out of God's spirit. Jesus said this in John 3, we'll get to this in a few months, but in his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus says, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Water baptism is the visible picture of the Spirit's invisible work in our hearts. That's, what, that's what's happening. When you see a baptism here, when a person professes faith and is baptized, it's not their water baptism that secures their salvation. It's a picture. Their water baptism is a picture of what God has done pouring out His Spirit, drawing that person to Himself. When you see an infant child baptized, we're not presuming that child is converted but we're acknowledging that our only hope for that child's salvation is that God would pour out his spirit upon that child. You know, that's why, I don't know if you've ever wondered this, but why do Presbyterians pour water instead of immersing? Well, simply put, because we always see the Holy Spirit being poured out. We never see the Holy Spirit being immersed. We never see the people being immersed in the Holy Spirit. We see the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the people. And so that's what baptism is a picture of. Let me address a little bit of confusion about this. It's one of the things that uh, most Christians throughout history, at least for 1900 years, wouldn't have thought of. And that's, it's something that's come with the rise of the charismatic movement. And it's a teaching that the baptism of the Holy Spirit that John talks about here is a second baptism a second blessing in the Christian life, which only a few Christians experience. And, and so what happens is you have within churches the idea that there are some sort of regular Christians, run-of-the-mill Christians, who may be sincere in their faith, but they don't have the gift of the Holy Spirit because they can't speak in tongues, they can't do healings, and so on. Uh, certainly, we believe that in the apostolic age, Miracles were done to prove, to validate the apostles and the leadership of the early church that they were called by God. Those miracles testified that, that God was with them and that their teaching was from God. Now, does that mean that you need to give Steve and I an exam this afternoon and say, hey, I want you to heal my broken arm. I want you to speak in tongues. No, how do you validate today whether somebody is called by God? you have something that the first century church didn't have. You have access to the whole Bible. And so you, you don't need us to, to, do, to, to do miracles. We can't, by the way. You don't need us to do miracles. God can. But we don't. You don't need us to prove that we're called by God. You just look at the scriptures and, for example, look at 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1 and say, okay, do their lives match with those who have been called by God for the work of elder? Okay, good. Then we don't need any other test. So should we be looking for some special baptism of the Holy Spirit today? Uh, no, if we mean speaking in tongues and doing miraculous things. But yes, if we mean that to be baptized in the Holy Spirit is to be a Christian. And that's what I think it means. The Holy Spirit's baptism doesn't divide the church into those who have the Spirit and those who don't. The Holy Spirit's baptism actually unites the church. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 12. 
verse 13. For in one spirit we were baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Every Christian has access to the same Holy Spirit. It's not a gift for a select few. The baptism of the Spirit is how the grace of Christ flows from the cross into our hearts as the Holy Spirit is poured out to us. So let's connect point one and point two. In point one, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the guilt of our sin, the penalty of our sin. He bore it upon the cross. Point two, he breaks the power of our sin and brings us to new life. It's, it's the same thing that happened with Lazarus. Lazarus was dead in the grave, and Jesus spoke to him. Lazarus, arise, and Lazarus arose. It's the same thing that happened to you when you became a Christian. It was a response to the baptism of the Spirit as Christ's Word was poured into your heart and made you alive. And so the, the pouring out of the Spirit deals with breaking sin's power as the shackles of sin are broken, and we're given new life in Christ. And John bears witness to that. He says, you know, once I didn't know him. I knew all of his prophecies. I knew him in the flesh. But I too was once dead in my sins, and I remained that way until his Spirit was poured out upon me. And this baptism, John says, this baptism I'm doing, it's just a picture of what he alone can do in your hearts. That's happened for many in this room, but I'm going to assume that not everybody in this room has come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you know that. Maybe you're hoping that the people around you don't know that. Maybe you're hoping your mom or your dad or your spouse, the friend that invited you, maybe you're hoping they don't know that. Maybe you've decided you'd never come to him. I wonder if he might not be working in your heart right now. And there are things that have been said that John's saying here that begin to make sense. And you're thinking, you know, I've tried all sorts of things in my life to, to fix the void, to take away the guilt, to hide my hypocrisy. Uh, and I just hope that nobody knows what's, uh, what I know, which is that I don't know. I don't know Jesus. You've tried things, hoping they could break the, the power of addiction to, to pornography and alcohol and drugs and all sorts of other things. None of it could do it. None of it could address the guilt you feel for things you've done in the past. None of it could help you begin the, to live the life you want to live. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he who raised Lazarus from physical death can raise you too from spiritual death to newness of life. He's not merely a good man, a good teacher, a master to be served. He's the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. I know you know that, but do you know Him? Do you know Him? We've talked about a lot of things today, fine points of theology. We've talked about election. We've talked about charismatic gifts. We've talked about baptism. You may well pass a test on all those things, but it's a po it is very possible to get all those answers right and not know Jesus at all. And there's also going to be people that, at least in, in my mind, get some of those things wrong. But they know Jesus very well. See, the test isn't how much do you know about Jesus. The test is do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Savingly, joyfully, personally, adoringly. Sometimes what we try to do, in all honesty, 
is get all of our theological ducks in a row to have all the answers so that we don't really have to acknowledge our sins and repent. Repentance is a terrifying thought, isn't it? To stand before God and acknowledge how bad we really are. To acknowledge it to ourselves, how bad things really are. Sometimes the church can make it harder. This should be the safest place to acknowledge that our lives are total train wrecks. But sometimes we feel like we've got to act like we've got it all together. And we can be the biggest of hypocrites. And so we try to look like the perfect parent, the perfect wife, the perfect husband, the perfect church member, the perfect pastor. So that nobody sees us as we really are, but friends, God does. God has seen us as we really are, and He welcomes us to confess our sins and acknowledge our need of Jesus. See, that's how we come to Christ. Not by coming with a checklist. Yes, I've done it, I've done it, I've done it, I've done it, I'm good. My theology's all in a row. We come to Christ by saying, Lord God, my life is a total train wreck. I've blown it. I've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. And my only hope of salvation is in what Jesus has done. When I talk to people about the Lord Jesus, I will say, more often than not, I would say, I ask people if they're going to heaven, and more often than not, the answer is, I hope so. And I'll say, on what basis do you hope that? And most of the time, people will say, because I, and then they'll add the list. Because I taught Sunday school, because I was in church every Sunday, I was an elder, I was a deacon, my father was a pastor. If your hope of salvation starts with because I, you have no hope of salvation. Your hope of salvation must begin and end with because Jesus. And when your hope is in Jesus alone, you don't have to act like life is all together, like everything is, is neatly put together and you're the perfect Christian. No, when, when, you're, when your trust is in Jesus Christ, it's a done deal. No one can snatch you out of his hand. Jesus is the one we need because he did exactly what we needed done. Turn away from yourself. Turn away from any sense of self-righteousness and behold the Lamb of God who forgives the sin of the world, who brings us reconciliation and the gift of eternal life, and even in this world gives us joy and peace and hope. Uh, behold this Lamb of God. John once didn't know him. My question for you this morning is, do you? Do you know him? Or do you just know about him? How do we apply this text? First, the church community needs to be a people that are willing to be open and honest about our sin. You know, if we hide our sin and pretend like we've got it all together, when it comes to things like addiction, we will never overcome it. The church is a place where we can confess our weakness and our need. Men, find a brother you can talk to for accountability. Women, find a sister you can talk to. Confess your sins and seek prayer and help and accountability with one another. And when someone comes to you and confesses, this is a healthy church, by the way. If you're a healthy church, people are going to be confessing sins. You're going to say, this is what I'm really struggling with. And if they do that with you, 
Are you able to point them back to the Lord Jesus? Can you say what John said? Well, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Second, there's a great word for parents in this text. We have the great privilege of many young families in this church. And as parents, so much of our life is about teaching our children to behave. And that's a good thing. We need to teach our children to behave because if we don't teach them to, the world will teach them not to. But the goal of parenting isn't well-behaved children. It's, It's not children who behave. It's children who behold the Lamb. That's the goal of parenting. When they sin and they will sin, bring them to the one who alone can take away their sin and welcome sinners at the same time. Do that by your words and do that by your own example. Parents, confess when you've blown it. Show them what it is to come to Jesus Christ. All right, finally, when we begin to understand our need of Jesus, it helps us to be incredibly gracious towards others. Beginning this week, I'm doing a series of letters to the congregation about the one another's of Scripture. Love one another, uh, gather together with one another, and so on. The heart of it is, how do we as Christians treat each other? You know, the gospel utterly transforms how we treat one another, especially so that we become quick to forgive because of how quickly God has forgiven us in the gospel. One of the ways you know you've gotten the gospel is you are far more concerned about your own sin and far less concerned about how others have sinned against you. The way, you've known you for, the way you know you've forgotten the gospel is that the sins of others bother you a whole lot more than your own sins. And you find yourself always accusing, always criticizing. It ought not be that way in the church. Forgive us our debts as we what? Forgive our debtors. As a congregation, let us make every effort to show one another the same grace that Jesus Christ has shown us. Let's go to him in prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you. I thank you that you are incredibly gracious, that you sent your Son, the Lamb of God, to take away our sin and to bring us new life by the Spirit. We thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that our salvation rests 100% upon you and not at all upon us. Father, teach us to love and adore Jesus Christ and to praise him for all eternity because he alone is worthy. We pray.